people seldom realize there's a massive difference between a zero million dollar company with three people and a zero billion dollar company with three people. There is a difference. It's in the culture, it's in the mission, it's in the people, it's in that way they talk about this. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about how you build a billion dollar company even with zero billion in revenue. Startups are about passion for a vision. They feel like cat in the hat. All of you recognize this slide. By the way, this was the slide, exact slide, I used in my first startup at Daisy Systems in my business plan. And my slide presentation, are those, they were, I won't tell you what technology we used back then. Uh, uh, but it feels like that, but there is a difference. And I can usually recognize this almost right away. Many of you have seen me argue with you about these irrelevant sounding points. It's the difference. I see Mark sitting there. We arm wrestle over this issue every time we meet. So what's the startup process about? Strategy to leverage your assets and minimize your liabilities. By the way, most people in their business plan forget the goal is to minimize liabilities in addition to leveraging your assets. You start with a short-term advantage, a wedge in the door. It's usually a technology advantage. You have to turn it into an asset. You want to experiment a lot early. I call it organized chaos phase of a company and you wouldn't want to turn it at some point as you grow, as you have more to lose, into an execution as a process. But the main thing you're trying to do in a startup is optimize risk management. You're building teams, and I'll talk about that, and you sell. So sell, sell, sell was going to be my emotional storytelling pitch. I'm not going to go into it. I'll only cover two, optimize risk management and people in gene pool engineering. So those are the two topics I'll try and talk about today. And someday I'll do the sell, sell talk when Carmen is, isn't here. So he, I, he, I have nothing to compare against how poorly I do it. Risk management is fundamentally what you're doing. There are many kinds of risks. If you're building a billion-dollar company, you have to think big. But you can't act big because your burn rate will get too high. So think big, act small. And the real test of a company, whether you're trying to build a zero-million-dollar company or a zero-billion-dollar company, is the trade-offs you make and how much conviction you have and courage you have to pursue the billion-dollar vision while doing the million-dollar tactics. I think last year I said, be obstinate about your vision, be flexible about your tactics. It's an art form. There's big, hairy, audacious goals, but risk management 
is about getting to a base camp that's much smaller than your ultimate vision. As I've explained many times, if you're climbing Mount Everest, getting to base camp is important. But way too many people, and this is where I critique a lot of investors, get their companies to a base camp that isn't within sight of Mount Everest. This is where the tactics you select is very important. Your base camp has to help you scope the path to Mount Everest. Huh. I'm missing a bill here. Okay. Uh, validate each element. Just because you believe what you're doing doesn't mean you're right. In fact, mostly you're wrong. A lot of words violate my own rule. I've seen many a company build the wrong thing on budget and on schedule. Test whether what you're trying to build is right. Test every assumption. And then worry about execution. So it's okay to be inefficient. It's okay to do if-then flexi-planning. There's no point planning if you, if you don't know what you're doing. I think a speaker earlier talked about this. And set up a culture of experimentation early. I said I talk mostly about risk. There's many, many risks of startup phases. You have financial risk, people risk, technology risk, market risk, investor risk, groupthink risk, all sorts of risks. I'm only going to talk about two of them. If I had enough time, I'd talk about all of them. And you're always making trade-offs. If you don't raise more money, you're taking a financial risk. If you put more features in the product, you're taking a financial risk, but reducing your market risk. If you're putting fewer features, you're taking less of an investor risk. So let's talk about financial risk. The big mistake I see, because people believe their assumptions, and they don't validate them, and this is where Minimum Viable Product is a really good book, I prefer to plan for the unplanned than build a plan. Most things, and most of you know, if you looked at your last year or two's history, you didn't expect what you know today. But don't forget, what you know today, there'll be an equal number of new things you'll discover by this time next year. Plan for the unplanned that's why flexi-planning is so important in managing financial risk. When you plan, the only plan that really matters is the worst-case plan, the contingency plan. Because the one thing you can't afford to do is run out of money. Mm. 
One of the things I say at board meetings, and it really irks other board members, uh, I seldom go to board meetings, but when I do, I say, figure out a plan to waste money. But wasting money, um, and when you get this slide deck, um, uh, there'll be um, a, a deck on it, uh, a reference on it. Uh, oh, I, I actually I have this down. So walk down the risk curve, not up the expense or time curve. Don't build a time versus burn rate plan. Build a risk versus burn rate plan. What do I mean? This kind of plan, you say time and burn rate, what really matters is what are the risk reduction points. That's when your burn rate should go up. That's how you do good risk management financially, by basing it on risk triggers, not time. What are risks worth take, uh, taking? If you can afford money, and there's a reference on that, I highly recommend you read that reference. It was a blog post by Brad Feld. Creating 1x downside, you lose the money you spent on the experiment, but 10x upside. The key to failure is to have them small and not catastrophic. People risk. People hire functionally is the wrong thing to do. If you think about the billion-dollar company you want to build, the people you hire will dictate what your company becomes, not the plan you have. So let me move on to people risks, because that's the second most important thing. If you survive long enough, which is what financial risk determines then the main thing is people and people risks. A couple of topics I'll try and cover very quickly. But let me start with your job as founder and CEO. I talked about the difference between a zero million dollar company and a zero billion dollar company. And I talked about thinking big, staying consistent with the vision, staying obstinate about your vision, flexible about your tactics. And that's what takes courage. So many practical short-term steps show up that you can lose your vision if you don't have courage of your convictions. A couple of tactical things I'd like to suggest. Be proactive about deciding your priorities. I would venture to guess the majority of you are reacting to things that come in, not being proactive. If 50% of your time is not free Sunday night as you're thinking about your week, you're almost certainly not going to be proactive. I suspect if you have 50% of your time free, 50% of that will go away into emergencies that pop up day to day. So 75% of your time will be reactive. And if you can't save 25% of time as measured retroactively, you're not leading. You're reacting to every phone call, every email message, every crisis. 
be proactive. It's the way you follow a vision. This specific process I want to talk about, which is a way of quantifying this issue of what kind of people you want to hire. I've never had somebody say to me they're hiring, they want to hire B-quality people. Everybody says, we want the best people, we want a great team. I say, what are you doing about it? The answer is almost certainly very vague and not definable. So let me talk about a couple of things. Engineering diversity is important. Tony talked about collisions. Collisions are about a merger of ideas and random interactions. Diversity is more important to a company's success in the gene pool. And the hardest thing to engineer because everybody likes people like themselves. And so they hire people like themselves, people they know. Be diverse about age. Young people think differently than old. Some speak from experience, some from fresh ideas. A soup of diversity is really good, whether it's by age, by the company people came from, by the industry they came from, from the country, whatever type of diversity you can engineer, I find it's a major indicator of success long term. There's a difference between a manager and a visionary. There's a reason most reasonable people don't start unreasonable companies. It's not reasonable to say you're going to build a billion-dollar company. Only unreasonable people do it, only people with vision. They tend not to be pragmatic. If they were, they wouldn't do unreasonable things. By definition, visionaries are not pragmatic. And again, you need both. But frankly, if I could only have one, I'd rather have instinct and vision over process and management. I almost always prefer the founder as CEO and a president as the manager, the process. But sometimes um, you, you can do it the other way around. Uh, Larry Page and Sergey talked a little bit about this. It worked out great where they actually got a good manager for a short time. It really helped them, I believe. People focus on their strengths. I haven't seen very many companies fail because of their strengths. But they always have weaknesses or liabilities in their business plan that they fail to focus on. The same is true of teams. Many people fail not because of what they know or what they know they don't know. Mostly failures come from what they don't know they don't know. And diversity helps tremendously with that. So gene pool engineering, how do you engineer diversity? I'm going to go through a very specific example because I hate people saying hire good people. Well, nobody tries to hire bad people. How do you build a great team? I've tried to quantify this process of how do you engineer a diverse gene pool for a company, but also tailored to a company's needs. Let's start 
by identifying your risks. Remember the investors were worried about your risks? Well, you should be worried about your risks too. Makes sense. If you don't know what your risks are, you can't engineer a team to address your risks. So let me go through each of these steps a little bit and illustrate it in a quantifiable way. Most people have functional needs, org charts, they start there. Slots we need to fill, I hate these charts. Because it's functional thinking. I need a VP of engineering slot. How about you identify your key risks? You don't need to read the risks. I should have made the font smaller so you don't try to read them. Uh, by the way, I use that technique in presentations a lot. Make the font small enough where I know the user won't read it because it goes from something worth reading to a picture that explains a vision. But identify the risks in your company. What will cause success or failure? Or sometimes upside. For each risk, identify the target companies that could, where you could hire from that could solve those risks. Find the names of the people in each of those companies and assign a priority to those names. So for your risk number one, R1, you now have 15 names that have identified people who come from the places that have solved that risk before and you know the people who help them solve that risk. That's a great way to address that risk. By making sure you have multiple companies, not just the last company you worked at, you're engineering diversity into your gene pool. Try and look outside the segment. Uh, one of the classic examples I give is Jennifer sitting here, Lanzatech, working on steel mills. There was a shortage of engineers in New Zealand where the company was based. They hired a guy who had worked on disk drives. You'd think there's nothing, no connection to be had. This guy knew surface morpho morphology. And, and a year later, the founder, Sean, came to me and said, you know, he figured out all new ways in which bacteria can grow on surfaces because he had looked at surfaces when doing disk drive surfaces. What else are you trying to do? Sure, you have a plan, but if you build a team that's gone through all the possible ways you could make mistakes in developing your product, you're way ahead. If you figured out the biases people have, and you have a diversity of biases, You've eliminated another source of errors. If you don't do this, you're going to make many of these mistakes all over again for, uh, for yourself with your dollars when you could have bought the people who could have helped you avoid these mistakes. I sometimes feel, and many of you as founders know and feel this way, it feels like in a startup you do things in every wrong way possible till you find the one way that works. You know, almost seems to be the last thing you discover. 
I sort of say my big advantage in startups is I've screwed up more, screwed up more times than anybody. So I keep finding new ways to screw up in. But collecting the mistakes you could make by hiring the people who've already made them is a really important part of engineering your gene pool. So you get a gene pool engineered to your key risks. That's going to increase the probability of success very, very significantly and save you a lot of time and money. So how do you hire in some of these areas that you don't know how to hire in? You're a great engineer at Google. You go start a company. You've never hired a CFO. You've never hired a VP of marketing. You've probably not worked with one. You probably have a very naive view of what a VP of marketing does. This is a paper I, that's on our website about how you might approach a problem of hiring in a domain you know nothing about. Many of you have run into this. I'd suspect the majority of you have hired the wrong person and a year later said, oh, I didn't know what I was looking for. Please read this paper. Uh, I was talking to somebody and I said their last hiring mistake, and we went through a debate on it, probably cost them $20 million because they hired the wrong person. The gene pool engineering paper in more detail is also on the website. These are things on our website that are resources for you that I've spent a lot of time. Let me talk about this fourth thing. I think I got in a lot of trouble because last TechCrunch last September, I said 90% of VCs don't help a company and 70% of them hurt a company. I truly believe most of your board members will hurt you. It's sad, I may be wrong, but it'll take a lot to convince me I'm wrong. It's nice to have diversity of opinion on your board, so don't get me wrong. Diversity always helps. But this paper, uh, which was uh, published when we hired Keith, talks about what you should look about and how you should engineer the board, because they're the ones with high influence you'll have an emotional reaction to, who will, one little comment from them will change something you do or change your trajectory. Also, starting with the wrong people is catastrophic. Sometimes people say, I just need to hire three engineers, let me just hire them. That's not what you're doing. You're hiring the three people to do task A, but you're doing something much more important. You're hiring the people who will hire the people who will build that billion-dollar company. If you just hire the people to do the task, you'll build the zero-million-dollar company, not the zero-billion-dollar company. Because they're going to be the people who hire all the other people. I Recently, we had a situation where a CEO needed some critical talent he needed to upgrade. 
And Dick Costello talked about how your task is to keep improving your team. Um, and, and that was a really compelling pitch. And I called the CEO, and they had a great candidate, and I referred it to him, and I said, please meet him. And he said, great. And he sent me a list of people this candidate was going to come in and interview, and I called him, and I said, if I were a good candidate, and I interviewed with these three people, I would not come back for a second interview. And I said, if they interview him, just interview him. And he came back. In my book, I would think he's a bad candidate because he doesn't have good judgment. This is the problem once you start in the wrong place. This is the difference between a zero million and a zero billion dollar company. I want to keep connecting. There's a massive difference between those two companies. So in that particular case, I said, okay, I'll do the first interview. I want to sell him before we start evaluating him. Don't get caught up in titles. We'll go back to that org chart. It's not about functional hiring. It's about collecting talent. When I started Sun, I hired this great database guy from Xerox Park, and people were arguing with me. We got a limited budget. We'd only raised two or three million dollars. Why are you hiring a database guy if you're not doing databases? I said, no, I'm hiring a really smart guy. And though we never did databases and no plans to do it, he affected the file system we did. And Sun ended up with NFS, which is still the standard today, because we happened to hire a database guy. But really, we didn't hire a database guy. We collect talent. So don't get caught up in titles. Create fancy titles if you need to to hire somebody. If you have a CTO, create a chief science officer. Create any title. Give them a title. If you have talent, there should be no budget. There should be no org hiring. Just make something up. Make him general manager of something. You never don't need that great person. You never don't have a budget for that person. You always have a budget. You always need that person. At that level of people who will help sort out the direction of your company, your brain trust, absolutely key. So one of the points I make in this paper about hiring, the science and art of hiring, is a VP of engineering shouldn't be evaluated on what he does in engineering. If he doesn't make your VP of marketing much, much better, or if your VP of marketing doesn't make your sales guy and your CFO and your VP of engineering much better, they're the wrong top-level brain trust for the company because you need a diverse team to help iterate the vision as you move towards Mount Everest. It's not about functional hiring. So let me stop there. I covered really only two or three. When I was doing this talk, just like I told you, you should decide what you want to talk about. I started my presentation slide by reasons to invest. So I did the same exercise. 
um, these slides may be on here or not. So I said, what does company building involve? Came up with a list, just like the first slide I gave on presentation. And the list went on. And I ended up with 48 bullets I want to talk about, and I said, that might take six hours. And so I decided to focus on three, following the rule of three. But someday, I hope we'll have time to talk about all 48 of them. It, it just goes on. There's probably 50 really important things about company building, the nuances of which you can get right or wrong. Um, let me finish with this last slide, which is from Steve Blank's blog. Since he listed nine, I have to list nine instead of three uh, on deadly sins. But let me, we have only a few minutes uh, before lunch is served, but let me take a few questions. Yes. Um, so I tend to do those very high concept pitches, and they tend to work well when I pitch them. But then I get asked to leave them behind because they'll get forwarded by somebody. And that's when I wonder if not having the more traditional um, investment banky style data rich presentation works against me or stay differently. The pitch works great if it goes with me and yeah. doesn't work so well. When it's no, I think that's a good point. Pitches given and delivered are about a human to human connection. Pitches uh, uh, that are left behind or forwarded as PowerPoints are very different. Sometimes you can still do both by having a long appendix. I think many of you met with Bill Gates yesterday, and I, st I, I tried to message to all of you the pre-read you were sending him could have a lot more detail. Always have the high concepts because he's not going to go through the pre-read details if you haven't planted the hook that says invest your time into reading the details. Uh, huh? So it is important to realize the two are different. Uh, appendix with a lot of details. List the questions. You know, if your main pitch, you even have very much like these, the questions, right? You can then say, if you want the details, they're there. This is not shallow. But you don't lose the emotional connection. Yes? Uh, yeah. Is this working? No. Um, you talk a bit about the, where you put your base camp as you're sort of starting and how you're going to get to the top. How do you know if you put your base camp in the right place or whether or not you're just looking at a bluff? Um, you know, if, if you have a vision, then you have a pretty good view on what you need to do to get to a vision. Now, if you attempt the vision in one step, you get your burn rate high. If you make any mistakes, you're going to miss and you're going to lose the opportunity to f miss your vision because of financial risk, you'll, you'll, you'll have to fold up your company or sell it or do something else. Um, so your vision should be about getting to this platform from which you can take more time scoping out the path. Um, 
the mistake I see boards making very commonly is get to profitability without realizing whether it's, uh, and that's sort of like building the zero million dollar company. But if it isn't built within sight of the zero billion dollar company, and if it isn't built where it helps you scope out the problem, the unknown unknowns to building that billion dollar company, then it's the wrong base camp. Hi. Yes. Hi, Vinod. Um, so when you talk, when you think about uh, engineering the gene pool, and this is like a real problem that uh, I'm facing right now. So. Uh, we got, you got a VP of sales, you got a VP of engineering, and then you're trying to hire a VP of marketing who is not in the same compensation structure as the rest of them, but functionally, in their functional arc, they contribute as much as the rest of them. So, is, so there's, there's some amount of inequality. So how, how long can you, do you, do you neutralize everything, or like what do you, what do you do in this case? So the answer is a complex one. Equality means different things. But the general rule, and I would refer you to Reed Hastings and Netflix, probably one of the best companies on clearly defining what the word culture actually means. In fact, uh, I'd actually done a culture presentation to give to, but I had too many different things to talk about, so I decided to eliminate that. But Reed Hastings has written extensively about culture. Uh, equality isn't the goal. Fairness is the goal. And fairness to a VP of marketing means what are the alternatives? And Reed talks about treating every employee as if they were leaving any particular year, what would you do to hire them back again? And so I'd refer you to Reed. Uh, we are out of time. I'll be happy to do this some other time for six hours. Because you can tell I'm passionate about this. I'm also passionate about the fact that most entrepreneurs get bad advice from most VCs, and it sort of bothers me and pains me. So I'm happy to spend as much time on any of these with you. But it is time now to go to lunch and be there on time. Thank you all very much.